G'day, and welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. I'm your host, Chris Desmond, and this is a show where I chat with interesting people who are doing fascinating things, who inspire me, and hopefully you guys, to get out of our comfort zones. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Greg Emerson, who was introduced to me a couple of weeks ago uh, by Ben Logan, who you would have heard back on the show uh, a few episodes ago. Now, Greg is a physician who specializes in finding the underlying cause of disease rather than just treating the symptoms. Uh, He got fed up with medicine's uh, approach of treating sickness rather than trying to optimize health and and reduce disease. Uh, He likes to introduce himself as a, a poetic, nomadic, shamanic warrior. Um, and I, I agree with him there. It's, it has a, a beautiful ring to it, and he, he definitely uh, shows those attributes. So today, obviously, we, we talk about health, uh, but not the, hey, what sort of cream can I get for that weird rash on my butt kind of health. Uh, it's, it's Greg's principles of health uh, that he tries to live his life by, and he tells us about them. We also talk about chasing achievement and the underlying motivations for that. We talk about reshaping worldviews. Talk about society's current addiction to comfort and the problems that are associated with that. About why we should face problems as tribes rather than individuals. And about how you and I can change the direction of the world. As always, thanks for taking the time to get uncomfortable with Greg and I today. Dr. Greg Emerson, welcome back to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. This is uh, recording the intro round two due to a little bit of a technical difficulty first time round. It's nice to be back, Chris. We always (laughs) adapt and survive. We do, we do. Thanks for uh, making the time to to have a chat with me again. So, Greg, uh, I think as we we talked about previously, um, I'm based in Wellington, you're in your clinic over in Brisbane, uh, just finished up with work for the day, and can you give the the listeners a little bit of background about yourself, um, kind of where you you grew up, a little bit about your your formative years, and also maybe some of the the reasons that you wanted to become a, a doctor in the first place. I grew up in Nelson, some uh, it's a beautiful part of the world. Uh, my kind of spiritual home still, uh, to a certain degree. Then uh, moved to Wellington, uh, where I went to secondary school. Then went to medical school in Dunedin, and then I uh, went back to Nelson Hospital to work two years as a doctor. And I played professional basketball for what is now the Nelson Giants. Then moved to 
the Taranaki, where I played professional basketball for the Taranaki Bulls. And after that, I decided to concentrate more on my medical career and moved to Fremantle in Western Australia to train as a emergency medicine physician, um, where I would end up uh, moving to Canada after that and running major trauma centres in uh, Edmonton in Canada before I moved back to the US. Uh, sorry, before I moved back to Australia. Very cool. That's a, that's a very good uh, synopsis. Uh, I want to I want to jump into a couple of those uh, of those topics that you just brought up, but I also want to ask you uh, about the story that you told me last time as well about the national basketball trials and what oh, happened yeah. there. So can you yes. elaborate on that, please? Well, it was a, it was one of my great life lessons, uh, which came in a mysterious way because this was nineteen eighty. Nine, and I was playing basketball for what is now the Nelson Giants, and I got invited to the New Zealand basketball trials, which were being held in Auckland. And with some of with the the top athletes, basketball athletes in the country, and I remember the coach who was Keith Meir at that time stopping the uh, basketball trials because I was absolutely dominating the trials. Um, and uh, probably shouldn't have been. Um, and he stopped the trials and called everybody together and said, this guy is scoring at will, but he can't run, he can't jump, and he can't shoot. And I thought, well, that's bloody nice. Thanks very much. Uh, um, uh, but, of course, it was, for me, ultimately, a massive compliment because – of course, I could run, jump, and shoot, but perhaps not to a level that these natural athletes were. What he was saying is that this guy is being successful on this court because of his determination and his willpower. I was the first one down the court. I was the first one back. I was the first one falling on the spilt ball. I was going hardest for the rebounds, all through uh, determination rather than perhaps a natural talent. So ultimately, even though it came across as slightly insulting, it was, for me, a big compliment because I knew that I didn't have the natural physical talents of some of these guys, but I knew that what would get me a lot across the line first, as it had all throughout my life, was my determination and will to succeed. Along with that determination and will to succeed, obviously to kind of maintain that consistency and, and get to that level, you would have had to have a reasonably uh, robust work ethic as well, I'm assuming. Oh, well, that, that's a, that's an offshoot from the determination and will mm. to succeed. Yeah, you know, you know, Dwayne Johnson, the Rock. I mean, he's been successful because of his uh, incredible. You know, he's up at four thirty in the morning, and you know, you turn on your Instagram, and there's the Rock at the gym four thirty in the morning. He got up at three thirty. You know, so um, yes, a, a, the success we all know. Is uh, is often is usually a reflection of uh, effort. Mm. Yeah, I was uh, I was having an interesting conversation about The Rock the other day. Not just that the gym based stuff, but his acting based stuff as well. And that actually, he actually he's getting quite good now. But when he started, he wasn't at all. <laughs> so again, I think it's that it's that work ethic that he shows as well. Um, but that that work ethic is that something that was has always been inherent in you, or is that something that you have had to develop 
over time? No, it's been inherent in me. Again, this 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 desire to be successful, and I always said that you know my family's uh, military. My grandfather, my father, my brother are all in the military, and uh, I realised that that I had I gone in that direction, you know, I would have would have wanted to be a in the special forces. I would have gone into the tried to get into the SAS, and if I'd been the US, I would have tried to be a naval seal. I have a huge and massive amount of respect for the Special Forces guys. I've done some training here in Australia with ex-SAS personnel in wilderness survival, and I have an extraordinary amount of respect for them. And uh, I, I don't know, again, I don't know where that comes from, but I, that's that's what I would have wanted to have done. Interesting. So g- going into medicine, what were, your, what were your reasons for that? Did you – had you kind of been always attracted to being a doctor or – I, look, I don't know the answer to that. I've thought about it long and hard. I've always been attracted to proving myself by choosing the hardest thing to achieve. And I don't know where that comes from, but that was from a very young age. And I can't think of a life event which has caused that. But whatever I've done, I've always tried to set myself the biggest challenge to prove to myself and perhaps others that I can I can actually achieve that. So of course, growing up, I thought that medicine would be the the hardest challenge for me, and I wanted to prove that I could do it. So, I, but I don't really know the psychological reasons that I've always okay. felt that way. Yeah, is that a is that the reason maybe as well that you went into the kind of emergency physician role as well? Is that it's it's just that consistent challenge, that high pace, that that hard work. I think so. I mean, probably the most challenging environment for any doctor would be an emergency department, uh, and that can be from a very you know young age. I mean, I was 23 working at Nelson Hospital, having to staff the emergency department by myself at night, and um, it's a, it's a very challenging environment, and, and you have to make split decisions, split second decisions, which are going to be life or death. And you have to work in utter chaos at times. And the bigger the hospital, the more chaotic it is. And even when I moved back to Australia, I went, okay, where am I going to move back to? I'm going to pick the biggest, hardest, busiest emergency department to work in, which at that stage was the Royal Brisbane Hospital, which is again a repeated pattern that I choose to work in the place which is going to offer me the biggest challenge to prove that I can do it. Mm. And is that kind of what you get out of those challenges is just – that, that proof to yourself that you can do it? I think so. I think that is. And you and I discussed previously how perhaps that's being driven by forces and factors which might, might not be that fulfilling for me in the long term because essentially to a degree, and certainly I can recognize this pattern in me earlier, that I was choosing to do that to prove to myself that I was enough because essentially probably at that stage there was a, there was part of me which didn't think that I was enough and I had to prove it to myself uh, and to other people. But, of course, it's a, it's a great formula for success, saying, uh, you know, being driven by pain, if you like, the pain of not being enough, which is an issue for just about all of us to some degree. And, of course, it's a great formula for success, but it comes at a cost because you're basically constantly telling yourself you're not enough unless you're successful. But, of course, as we know, for all of us, that some, if, you, if you keep working on that model, 
you 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 can never be fulfilled um, because you can never have enough success, which is why I've got so many bloody degrees. Uh, but ultimately, it leads to uh, some psychological issues because you're achieving, but for the wrong reasons. And, and it took me till I was about forty to work that shit out. And and then I worked out that you know it's much better that I was enough. It's just who I am. And of course, this is an issue for all of us. I mean, the, the two great questions: am I am I loved enough, and am I good enough? Are the the two questions which we all ask ourselves. And I worked out that I was enough just being me, and I didn't have to keep achieving and being successful to be enough. And now I do what I do and I achieve what I achieve because I want to, because I want to contribute to the world, um, not because I'm driven by having to prove it to myself that I can. Mm. Yeah, that's that's interesting where that, that thread's gone, actually. And I think you're, you're right, it, it, is if you were just constantly chasing after success from that point of view, um, once you hit something, your definition of success just changes. And so it just kind of keeps going, going forward and going forward. And I think, I mean, it's good in, in some respect because you and I both realize now that we actually thrive on, on a challenge and we thrive on, on doing things. But if you're, if you're chasing after it for the reason that, hey, I'll be happy when I, I hit this, I'll be fulfilled. This will, this will give me that, that validation that I'm, I'm looking for. Yes. It does become kind of detrimental in, in that, that point. Absolutely does. Mm. But it took me time to realize that. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think it does for course, everybody. In a challenge now, there is part of my brain which says, okay, go back to that. And there's a comfort zone there for me. It served me for 20 years. And, and then I realized, no, you've done that before. Ultimately, it caused some major problems in your life. Don't go down that pathway. Now I want to help. Now I want to be successful. Now I want to be driven because I think that uh, I have a lot to offer rather than the reverse, which is I'm not enough which I'm success unless I'm successful. So I've just switched it around and I can still find that I can achieve what I want to without that, you know, that negative self-talk that you would have otherwise. Yeah. Was that kind of uh, an immediate pivot that you did that you thought just one day, hey, I'm, I'm just going to change my worldview or how did – how did that evolve? Uh, it, no, it came with crisis. You know how a lot of a lot of pain, pain can take you to uh, you know crossroads in your life. Do I turn left, go in this direction? I, I need to make a change. Something is not working, and I am getting enormous amounts of pain. Something's not working in my life, and I can either continue down that path or I need to find out what is going wrong and sort it out. So, no, it was a gradual thing that, you know, when you just find that your life is not in the direction that you want to and something's gone wrong, you have to try and work out why it's going wrong. So that took – I got interested in personal development and started doing a lot of kind of Tony Robbins stuff, a lot of Jim Rohn stuff, and went down that path to try and concentrate not so much on – me being successful, but trying to figure out what my model of the world was and how it was leading me astray. Mm. It's a gradual, a gradual journey that there was over several years, which uh, which I went on trying to get myself out of pain that I found myself in. Yeah, yeah. 
And I'm assuming that that wasn't a, a particularly easy journey for you either, kind of confronting some of that pain, um, but also sort of shifting your mindset and shifting the or understanding what your worldview was and then reshaping it into the way that you wanted it to be. It's not, but you and I both know. And this is, I mean, we know Homo sapiens since the since the dawn of time have uh, been given challenges, and you grow from those challenges. And you know, it's funny. I always I always talk to people about um, my psychiatric rotation at Nelson Hospital, where uh, in the mornings I I was uh, looking after people in a long stay psychiatric institution. And in the afternoons, I was working in a walk-in clinic in the middle of the city. And most of the people who come into a walk-in clinic where they need some counseling, need someone to talk to, are uh, usually, more often than not, women. And their problems usually are relationship-based. So I'm like this 24-year-old doctor who hasn't really even had a serious relationship yet. I'm pretty good in the mornings walking around trying to work out how much of some psychiatric drug to inject into somebody to stop them jumping off the roof. But I'm expected also to have skills at talking to a middle-aged woman about the relationships they're having. And I've got, I've got nothing. I'm not trained to do that. You know, flash forward 20, 20 years, I've done this personal development stuff. I've had a marriage which incredibly sadly failed. I've been through enormous amounts of pain. Um, I've experienced black dog times and and come out the other side and you know Theodore Roosevelt always used to say you know ride in the saddle not in the armchair and having ridden and you, you if you're sitting in the armchair uh, and if, if your wisdom has come from books there's that ancient stoic saying that you know uh, wisdom from books is not enough once you've been through those pains and those challenge you have a lot more to contribute to other people going through the same. And this is one of the things in my clinic, having been sick myself and having gone through relationship problems, I have so much more to offer people than if I hadn't gone through that. So challenge makes us stronger. This whole like, this way, whole your podcast's about, you know, mm. uncomfortable, okay. Because you, you are meant to be uncomfortable because you come out the other side stronger. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's often easy to sometimes shy away from that discomfort and, I know myself I did it for for a while as well as that sometimes you just think oh, I just don't want to address that because it's it, it feels like it's going to be painful it's feel it feels like it's it's not going to go very well um and also I feel like I don't have the skills myself to to address that like like your example of being a 24 year old guy trying to counsel middle-aged women on, on relationship problems that actually, yes, that was a really uncomfortable situation. You, you didn't have the skills there to, to, uh, to do that. Um, I, yeah, I, I feel for you in that situation actually. Um, but kind of once you, once you start exposing yourself to those, to those situations and start to, to build that, you start to kind of understand that actually, hey, I'm, I, this isn't as un uncomfortable as I thought it was going to be. This is, um, I'm, I'm starting to develop those skills that I need to, to, to deal with this stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be able to take on a larger uncomfortable challenge 
next time round when it when it comes up to me. Um, we've kind of we've kind of we're, we're genetically programmed to uh, improve after resilience because if we didn't, we died out. Hmm. So all our all our um, ancestors who didn't respond well to challenges, they died. So we are a product of all our genetic heritage, our anthropology, our ancestry, and and the people who were who faced challenges, which we've faced for the last you know one and a half million years, we're genetically programmed to get stronger from those challenges. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And that's why our species is as accessible. It's one of the reasons our species is accessible as it is. Mm, definitely. No, we're moving away from that a little bit. We've now gone, okay, we've an addiction to comfort. We've got an addiction to um, uh, abundance, not scarcity. We've got an addiction to I don't have to contribute to my survival anymore. So we're kind of changing our species genetic. Well, not genetic. We're not honouring our species genetics, and that is starting to cause enormous problems in society. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we've we've moved very much from that kind of more more tribal society to a much more urban society. Just everything's everything's abundant. You can kind of walk down to the shop, or you can drive down to the shop actually, and, and buy yourself some buy yourself some food. Everything is quite quite comfortable and quite easy. Um, I mean, you you mentioned problems there before. What what are the kind of the major problems that you see as a as a result of that um potentially from a health point of view initially but then other problems that you see as well well i mean mood is a big problem i mean depression is an enormous problem these days anxiety is an enormous problem uh you just have a look at the number of people on psychiatric medicate or antidepressants now uh mood stabilizing drugs you have to look at the number of people who are taking some non-pharmacological drugs, looking for something that's missing in their life. Uh, so there's, there's, there's depression and anxiety because of people's, you know, homo sapiens are designed or genetically programmed to live in small tribes of 30 or 40 where we face adversity because adversity is good for us. With the proviso that the adversity is faced by the tribe and not us alone. We're a disaster alone. As a, as a, we're a primate who has to live in a group. And if you're facing a challenge on your own, that's a very different kettle of fish. Uh, but one of the problems now we've lost our tribal society. I mean, we live in cities of five million, but don't know anybody very well. Um, so you can be very lonely in a city. So we're designed to live in small groups, uh, come out stronger after facing challenge, and contribute to our survival. You know, you and I normally today wouldn't be sitting here talking about a computer. We'd be uh, we'd be preparing the bison that you and I went out hunting today, and the others would be preparing the the the, the food they went and gathered today. And there was this communal feeling of contributing to our survival, which is now completely and utterly missing from our daily existence. And that is that's caused a loss of purpose. And the survival literature is very, very clear that the most number one, most important thing in ensuring survival in any situation is your mindset, and your mindset is set by your feeling of purpose. 
And a lot of us are lost in what our purpose is in life because we've lost that need to contribute to our survival in a tribal situation. And that's causing a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. It's also because we're not facing the challenges that people are getting sick from disorders, diseases caused by abundance, you know, uh, too much, not enough discomfort to make our immune system strong, too much comfort in terms of we'll sit all day and we won't exercise. I mean, we're designed to get, we're designed to do at least two hours of strenuous exercise a day and not many of us are getting that anymore because we all have to work 12-hour days. And then, you know, you're going to drive an Uber on a Saturday night to make some money so you don't, you can pay off the mortgage. So, we're living lives that we're not meant to and suffering the physical uh, consequences with diabetes and heart disease because we're putting on too much white fat. We're not getting enough cold water to get our brown fat out. So brown fat's changed to white fat. So we're getting diseases of abundance of diabetes and high blood pressure. And we're also getting mental illnesses because of our loss of the contribution to the tribe. So, you know, you could probably, I, I can't think of an illness really other than, you know, an acute trauma where that's not involved somewhere in the process of the illness. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I think, as you said, one of the points that you made was that we've moved into these, into these large cities that we're not used to, but... I mean, as a result of that, we don't have the connection that we had to those to those people um, around us. And, and I think a really important point that you made was that when we face challenges, we face them as a tribe rather than as individuals. And because we're in amongst a whole lot of people, but almost socially isolated, we're much more kind of we're trying to face these challenges by ourselves we're trying to kind of portray an outward um outward kind of demeanor of hey i've got this it's all right i I don't want to i don't want to ask for help because i don't know these people around me quite as well as i as i would have if we if we lived in a, a tribe 100% 100% true, and the, 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 the population subset most at risk of that is middle-aged men mm. um, for exactly those reasons you've just said, which is why the suicide rate in middle-aged men is just crazy high at the moment. It's an enormous problem. Mm. Greg, I mean, this is, a, this is a pretty meta question, and I don't know if you have an answer for it at all, but the, the sense of purpose was kind of coming up strongly um, in what you were talking about there, do you have any kind of suggestion or how, how do you go about kind of figuring out your own sense of purpose? Well, you just have to do it. That's the number one thing. People, a lot of people don't. They say, I, I haven't worked out what it is. It hasn't been given to me. Yeah, I, I think I'm meant to be here for this great grand purpose, but it hasn't come to me yet. Well, make one up. Um, for today, you don't. You know, it's like it doesn't have. You don't have it. Have to have it tattooed on your chest and be there forever. You can change it in a week if you like. But just have one today, and it doesn't have to change the world. It, it. But it does have to be something more than just for yourself. You can't say my purpose in life is to earn a million dollars and have a really cool car and a big boat. That's not a purpose which is going to make you survive the uh, the situation you find yourself in. It's very clear that the 
the the purpose has to be for you, but also for a, the bigger picture as well. I mean, my my purpose, and this hasn't been for years now. I don't want to change the world. I would like to minimise my impact on the earth and make sure that I leave it in a better place for my two daughters. That's my purpose in life. My my purpose is to protect and serve my daughters and leave the world a better place for them in some way. And is that going to change the world? You know, is that going to make me a Mahatma Gandhi? No, of course not. But it's going to mean I survive in a situation because I absolutely know that's what I'm here to do. And you ask my daughters that? Um, you say you say to both my daughters, what's your dad's job? They're not going to say he's a specialist physician. They, they, I can guarantee you, I can absolutely guarantee you, they, say, they will say he's here to look after us and make sure the world's a better place for us. And that makes me very proud. Much more proud than if they said he's a famous doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, an interesting, an interesting point about, about the purpose that you say is that you do, you do just have to go and do it and um, – I mean, it's not for, I think the vast majority of people, it doesn't, it doesn't just come to you in kind of that, that flash of lightning moment. It's, it's going out like, there. Yeah. Going yeah. out there, being curious about things, trying things out and figuring out kind of what you, what you like, what you're into. Um, and as you say that, that purpose can evolve over time. And I think, I mean, that's, that's probably a good segue back to your, uh, emergency physician years. Yeah. Is that actually you? You worked as an emergency physician, and then your your purpose kind of remained the same as to hey make the world a better place. But you, how you were going about it kind of pivoted and kind of shifted. Yeah, can you tell us kind of what the what the next evolution from the emergency physician was? Where did you where did you go to from there? Yeah, so that's kind of fascinating. There was people – I mean, I spent a long time training to be a emergency physician. I worked in Canada. I worked in major trauma departments. I spent a lot of time with the Royal Flying Doctor Service. I worked for the Shock Trauma Air Rescue Society in Canada, being dropped into major road traumas. And then I just I, – for, for many reasons, I decided it wasn't what I wanted to do anymore which is kind of a crazy thing to do because I just spent years working incredibly hard to get the pinnacle of my career. But I, for, for a number of reasons, I started to find my, my role. The, the more seen you get in medicine, the less, you know, I, I started to have to get involved in a lot more admin rather than, you know, helicopters. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, Dr. Emerson, there's not enough beds in the hospital. What are you going to do about it? Well, I, I don't know. I'll go out to a road trauma. But don't ask me about getting more beds, um, and I, I started to see the same old people with the same old problems in the emergency department coming back every week, and I'm thinking, why is nobody sorting these people out? Why is nobody sorting out what's wrong with their abdominal pain? Why am I seeing somebody every week with asthma? Why can't somebody fix their asthma? Why am I seeing somebody who keeps having strokes? And this is the fourth time I've seen this guy with a heart attack. Why the hell can't somebody work out what is wrong with these people? And I realized the old analogy of, you know, standing at the, the, the top of the water, the top of the, 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 being at the bottom of the cliff and fixing up people when they fall off. I realized that I probably had something better to add. There seemed to be a lot of people falling off the cliff. There was a massive pile of bodies at the bottom of the cliff. And I thought, well, maybe I got more to offer rather than trying to sort out why there's not enough beds at the Royal Brisbane Hospital. 
is now getting up to the top of the cliff and trying to find out why all these people are falling off the cliff. Plus, I also started to get sick myself. That's a long story. And um, I, I, I took a, it took a long time for me to work it. Nobody knew what was wrong with me. and it, it took a long time for me to sort that out. And I did develop, during that journey of trying to work out why I was feeling like I was, I, I developed a lot of skills, which I thought, well, I've got a skill set now that will be able to help these people who keep coming to the emergency department. And when I started thinking about it, I thought, just a bit, everybody's coming here rather than rather than just an acute, other than an acute trauma. There, there were there were lifestyle factors involved and and causes of the illness. I mean, you don't get asthma for no reason. You don't get high blood pressure for no reason. There's, you don't get inflammation for no reason. Medicine has moved. You know, look at heart disease. They've moved from saying it's all caused by cholesterol, saying, whoops, we got that wrong. It's not cholesterol. It's, uh, it's caused by inflammation. But that's where it finishes. Well, inflammation happens for a reason. If somebody comes to you, you're a physio with a, a sore ankle, and you say, yes, well, you've got sore ankle syndrome, thanks for coming, you probably haven't done them much of a service, and you would be expected to do much more than that. You'd be expected to say, well, did you fall on it yesterday? Because maybe it's broken. Did you, um, is it red and hot with a fever? Because maybe it's an infection. Did you get bitten by a freaking snake yesterday? Because maybe it's sore from a snake bite. Uh, but in medicine, we stopped doing that. We just said, here's asthma, here's your puffer. Here's, you've got high blood pressure, here's your tablet. You're depressed, here's your antidepressant. You're having heart attacks, here's your stent. Without going, well, hang on, let's look at why all this stuff is happening and, and find out the lifestyle factors and the biochemical, microbiological, physiological reasons this is happening follow the intelligent design of the body, which wants us to be healthy, and all those chronic illnesses can go away. And medicine doesn't do that. And I, by being sick myself and going through that process, I realized I've got a skill set here, which is which can help people stop falling off that cliff. So that's, that's the main reason why I changed. Yeah. And because when I discussed, I do like, I've been doing emergency medicine work for, for, you know, 20 years by that stage. And it was time for me to, you know, again, get uncomfortable and, and, and start a different career path and put myself out there, embrace some discomfort and see what I had to, to offer. Yeah. So you stepped right out of emergency medicine, started up your own clinic, no patients yep. and no, uh, no marketing strategy, no advertising strategy, no idea. Cause I had never worked. I had been in hospital from the start of my career. So I never had to run my own clinic, my own practice, get patients. They just kept pouring in the doors. But when you're in practice for yourself, it's a very different thing. You've got to have some idea of getting yourself out there and getting people to come and see you or letting people know what you do. And I had no experience with that at all. Mm. Did you did you have to figure out what it was that you were going to do? Because, I mean, how do you or do you define yourself at the moment as a as a medical practitioner? Like what do you talk about kind of what well, you specialise in? If I'm out on a, a party on a Saturday night, I say that I'm a kind of a poetic, poetic, nomadic, shamanic warrior. Um, that's a Saturday night description. Uh, during the week, uh, I am a, a physician who specialises 
in finding the underlying cause of a disease rather than just treating the symptoms and by correcting that underlying problem and honoring the intelligent design of the body, helping you get over your illness rather than just treat it symptomatically. So the, the poetic nomadic shamanic warrior is actually much easier, quicker thing to say. It is, it is. It's a, it gives you a cool mental picture as well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Look, when you, when you stepped into that, Greg, I mean, how, how did people around you respond? I mean, I can imagine your medical peers uh, gave you some quite strange looks. Oh, you have no idea. You have no idea. Not, not strange looks. Uh, something had abnormal had happened to this guy because he was now talking about, you know, quackery. You know, he's, he's become a quack. Really? Really? Is that because, you know, you know for example, if you've got eczema, the standard process is to give you some steroid creams. What I discovered is that eczema was is just a outward manifestation of an internal disruption, probably caused by profound, profound zinc deficiency, food sensitivities, and probably para- intestinal parasites. If you take just about everybody and you fix their, you get rid of their intestinal parasites, you fix, you measure at a scientific laboratory their, lead, their zinc levels are very low, and take them off the foods they're reacting to, their eczema goes away. That's not quackery, that's good science. If you're working in a lead mine and you start to get weakness in your legs and you've got high lead levels in your blood, that's not quackery, that's good science. But as soon as you leave the model of I'm not going to find the underlying cause, I am just going to treat the symptoms, once you leave that paradigm, you get you get seen as some sort of you're leaving the tribe, leaving the clan, and uh, you lose your professional reputation instantly. And I had a friend of mine um, who was organizing an emergency medicine conference, and he said, oh, look, I'll get you to come and talk at the conference about what you're doing now. And I said, well, good idea, but I don't know if it's going to get up. He said, no, I'm on the organizing committee. I'll organize it for you. He rang me a week later, and he said, no, everybody else said they don't want you talking on that. So, you know, you quickly, quickly lose your professional reputation. And that's hard. That is real. That that is not easy. To uh, it's disappointing, um, especially when you feel like you're using good science. And I mean, I, I do I do more testing than anybody else. I do more scientific testing than anybody else to prove my case because I have to. And you know, everything I do is in a scientific textbook. Everything I do is a microbiology or physiological textbook. Everything I do is in a scientific journal. It's just. The concept of finding the underlying cause of illness has become foreign to medicine, because, that, because often that requires. Now, now I'm not blaming doctors for that, uh, to a, to a large degree, because many of the public also don't want that, because that may require some discomfort. It may require some lifestyle changes. And they did a study recently where they sent a hundred people along to a GP. And the GP said, look, you've got a choice. You can either make some lifestyle uh, changes or take a tablet. And I think the figure was 90% of people said, well, just give me the tablet. So, you know, I'm not just blaming doctors. It's An empty waiting room is a very powerful way to get doctors to change the way they practice medicine. But while the waiting room is full of people who want their steroid creams for their eczema, well, why is a doctor going to change? So... 
you know, there's a, there are a lot of factors involved why this model of medicine has come about now where I'm just going to treat your symptoms so you can go back to eating your fast foods and not getting any exercise. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think part of it is the is the the system that uh, that health practitioners operate within, and that it is much easier to to measure people whose symptoms that are treated and improve, uh, rather than kind of measuring the amount of people that don't get sick. And you've got a point on your website actually. Um, in, that in ancient China, doctors were remunerated according to how few sick patients they had in their community, which is, it, it just kind of, it makes sense to me is that that what? is the way that we should be approaching healthcare. Well, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, you look look back at somebody like Sitting Bull, the great uh, Sioux chief, uh, you know, who was also uh, the, the medicine man for the tribe. You know, if you're looking after uh, a tribe of Sioux Indians, uh, you, you, it's your job to make sure they're as healthy as possible. It's your job to lead by example and show them how to be strong and healthy and be resilient. You know, you, you, if you weren't teaching your tribe how to be strong and resilient, your tribe wasn't going to be around for very long. And, you know, whereas we, we've now changed that where, you know, probably the, the professor in the ivory tower who's telling you what drug to take is, is probably not a very healthy guy himself. Uh, and because it sits in the armchair, not in the salad, and not in the salad, not in the saddle. So, uh, yeah, it's very, that's very important for me to live the lifestyle that I promote as an example. I mean, I'm I'm 53 now, and I'm as strong and fast and as energetic as I was when I was a professional professional basketball player when I was 24 in uh, Nelson, and probably stronger um, and and more physically muscular than I was when I was 24. So, yeah, you, if you want to be sitting bull and lead the tribe, you look at sitting bull and crazy horse, you know, the guys from history, you know, those guys led by example. They were on the the horse at the front of the tribe and they were the strongest, fittest guys. That's how you got to lead. And I think that's now departed from, you know, some of the because some of the advice that we get uh, on health is coming from people who don't, who are experts in sickness, but not in health. Mm, yeah, and I mean, we could we could go down a rabbit hole there about and kind of talk about sort of responsibility and uh, and where that where that lies and and how to how to lead. But actually, I think that's probably a good time to talk about your principles for health, vitality, and uh, longevity. And yep. you you mentioned to me earlier when I when I brought them up that hey these are ones that you um that you developed ten years ago, uh so it would be interesting actually to see if you if you do still agree with all of the stuff no, that you were I, talking I, about. I can't even remember what I wrote, but I do remember Jim Rohn saying, you know, there are new no new fundamentals. Be very wary of somebody trying to sell you a new antique. So. I'm hoping that I still agree with what I wrote because the fundamentals shouldn't change. Yeah. What, what, what should change is, is, is an approach, perhaps, you know, a new surgical technique, a new medication, but the fundamentals of health, uh, you would hope, always stay the same. And I'm sure I'll probably still agree with everything I said. Mm. Oh, and if you don't, I think it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting yeah. to hear why. Well, 
Yeah, so your first one was uh, to know exactly how old you are. And I think you, you made reference to that, hey, this wasn't just the chronological age that you have. Yeah, I suppose that's, I mean, I suppose that's still true. I mean, that was saying, okay, well, go and get tested um, to see if you are as healthy as you think you are. Now, now, I don't think that necessarily means going to a doctor anymore. You probably the probably this is the best tool that you can have, which is a tape measure and a set of scales. What's my waist circumference? If you're a man and your waist circumference is greater than 35 inches, or you're a woman and your waist circumference is greater than 30 inches, then you've got some problem because you are starting to deposit a lot of white fat around your middle, and white fat is caused by insulin storing excessive amounts of fat, and that fat produces estrogen, which causes enormous amounts of problems. So high insulin levels and high estrogen cause a massive amount of problems. So you can look in front of the mirror, and I was an expert at standing in front of the mirror telling myself I still look like a 24-year-old basketball player when that was not the case anymore. And if I'd got out a tape measure and checked my waist circumference, I would have been in for a rude shock. So denial and looking through some different colored glasses in the mirror is a very powerful tool for perhaps allowing us to ignore what is actually going on. So yes, test yourself, but maybe that doesn't necessarily mean going into sophisticated blood tests. It might mean being truthful about how you look in the mirror, what's on the scales and what that tape measure shows. Mm, yeah, and I think, I mean, you're right with that, that sometimes we look at ourselves through through rose-tinted glasses. And if you are with with most of the stuff it is quite insidious um in terms of in terms of onset and in terms of changes that you see as well and with that kind of insidious change it often it becomes a new normal and that you don't yes. know where you're where you're at and you, you don't always get quite a, a gauge because your your body and your brain's got used to that yeah happened mm. to me Hmm. Um, your point point two was exercise. I'm assuming that you still agree with that. Uh, even more so, I, I think, and I think it's exciting to see the way exercise is moving away from perhaps you know hours of cardio to more the movement now towards natural movements, the movements uh, to shorter, more high intense training. Uh, I think that's very very positive. It's also important, you know, to make sure that exercise is not just aerobic, but it's also anaerobic with strength training and also involves flexibility and balance exercises. I'm a huge proponent of, of yoga, and I'm amazed at how many, you know, 60-year-old men come to see me with sore backs, and I say, well, you know, how many times a week are you doing yoga? And they go, well, what's yoga? I mean, you know, again, it's uh, fitness is not just about going for a run these days it's about incorporating multi-modalities proprioception training balance training uh strength training and flexibility training as well but i mean again the good news is you don't have to do that for three hours you know you could do 10 minutes of balance training and some of the balance exercises i might be walking down the park you go down the local park watch how the kids play in the park and at some stage during our development, you and I go, well, I'm not, I'm not meant to swing on monkey bars anymore and walk on that rail. I have to walk down the footpath and be a mature adult. I don't know where that came from because 
um, you know, that hasn't been a good transition for us from a physiological perspective. So incorporating natural movements and high-intensity exercises is a very exciting new development in the world of exercise. Mm, yeah, and I hear what you're saying with that as well. I'm speaking of long periods of cardio. I'm actually training for an ultra marathon at the moment, <laughs> so I've been out running like five five hours most weekend uh, on a day or the weekend. But actually, one thing that I've found that I've I have started doing yoga pretty regularly, and actually my recovery is phenomenal now compared to what it used to be like going out and just running a half marathon and that I'm yeah I, I I've run for five hours so I'm tired and sore and hungry that afternoon and a bit chafed but yeah. by like nine o'clock the next morning I'm fine I can bend over and touch my toes and by lunchtime I feel I can go out and go for a bit of a jog I haven't because I've always she nicely scheduled a rest day for myself straight after that but uh yeah yeah mm. Yeah, it's it, it's incredible. Um, your third point was to reduce stress. Uh, re- look, reduce stress. I, I absolutely still agree with that, but I think I'd probably take a much more bigger picture than I perhaps probably when I wrote that ten years ago. I was saying, you know, uh, don't work as hard, uh, get some more relaxation. But I think it goes back to the the discussion you and I had previously was that. Stress is the picture is much bigger and it's anthropological and this movement away from our tribal society, movement away uh, from discomfort to comfort, movement away from uh, scarcity to abundance is causing an anthropological stress on us, which is way worse than uh, we have ever previously realized. And sure. Part of, part of that then becomes the smaller stress that I was probably referring to back then, which is, oh, we're, we're all working too hard, but we've all locked into a lifestyle which is just damaging us completely. I mean, that, those data shows that, you know, a typical hunter-gatherer worked hard for, you know, 12, 14 hours a week hunting and gathering, and the rest of the time, you know, we sat around the fire. You and I got back from the hunt. We sat around from the the, the fire and told tall tales about, what great hunters we were and had a good feed and then, uh, you know, moved camp the next day. And we're now all working 12-hour days to try and pay off the debt to the bank and the enormous amount of tax that we have to pay. And, you know, we have no idea how our children are going to buy a house uh, because, you know, it's a million dollars for a house now. You know, my daughter's going to be a primary school teacher. And I, you know, how, how does she buy a house these days with these? I mean, New Zealand's even worse than Australia sometimes with house prices. So everyone's driving for Uber on a Saturday night to get some more money. So I think stress is an enormous problem. But I think the main stress is coming from our move away from what we're genetic, how, how we're genetically programmed to live our lives. So even if you can go and have a holiday in Fiji once a year for a week, you're going to come back to an existence which you're not genetically programmed to lead, and it is causing enormous physiological and psychological stresses on us as a species, which is why you're seeing this huge amount of rise in illness and and perhaps problems with drugs and alcohol that are manifesting themselves these days. While we're sitting on this point, uh, Greg, how do you go about reducing your stress? Like, What strategies do you use? Uh, Look, you know, I was. I read a great book recently called Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Goes into this dramatically, 
and he studied it for 10 years. He's written a definitive book on it. And here's the problem. He doesn't have any answers. <laughs> you know, there is no obvious solution to this. I mean, you can, you can, you can institute small changes. You can try and develop a, you know, try and find a tribe of like-minded people. Um, you can try and work, say, okay, I'm not, try and work smarter so you can still have a good income but don't have to work as many hours. You can find your purpose in life. You can embrace adversity so you develop some um, resilience. But there is no great answer to the direction the world is traveling in for all of us. Now, you know, good luck not paying half your income in taxes. Uh, you know, good luck not having to work, be expected to stay for two hours afterwards. Good, not, good luck finding a house that you can buy to live in for $50,000. Uh, you know, th there is, I mean, who, who, is there an answer to the skyrocketing property prices in New Zealand? I don't think anybody's got that answer yet. Uh, is it is, you know, how much we have to work to be able to pay our mortgage? I don't know if anybody's got any answers. The world needs a reset. There's no doubt about that. But until that happens, we just have to find small ways of coping with it. And, in fact, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've been a farmer for the last six or seven years. And I did that for health purposes because I wanted to take responsibility for my own food production. I wanted to live in the wilderness, but I'm, I'm moving on from that because I've found it very socially isolating. And, you know, I work 12 hour days during the week and then I go to my farm on the weekend and uh, work on the farm all weekend and it's very, very socially isolating. And I think that's a great idea if you're in a small farming community with your small tribe, but it's, you know, now with my kids growing up, it's just me on, on its own. And I've found that lifestyle now is contributing to stress rather than relieving it. So I am taking, I have got to take some steps to try and live a, live a life which is more consistent with, my anthropology than I am at the moment. Of course, we we all know that anthropologically, the development of farming, you know, started our inevitable decline in a way as a species because we went from being a hunter gatherer. You know that book. What was the book called? Uh, Sapiens. I can't remember who wrote it. And when you read that, when you read the first five chapters of that book, you go, "Holy shit!" You know, we went from this I kind of like slightly risky but generally ideal existence as hunter gatherers. To, to working, you know, sunrise to sunset as farmers, you know, smashing out wheat to, to grow. I mean, you read that, you go, what did we do that for? I mean, we had to in the end, but you read that book and you go, shit, that's where we all, that's where we all started to go wrong. You know, starting the agriculture era. And I mean, I, I really like the fact that I've been a, a farmer for seven years and I've developed some extraordinary skills from doing that. But it's not serving anymore. It's contributing to my stress. You know, and you read Sapiens, you go, holy shit, that's why I'm so stressed because I'm, I've adopted a lifestyle which started our decline as a species. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think you, you make some great points there about how multifactorial it, it is. And I mean, people look for kind of magic bullets and, ah, oh, what's the optimal amount of time that I need to meditate for? Oh, it's 12 minutes yeah. and 47 seconds. Um, but it's, it's, so much of it is just a piece of the puzzle. It's it's a cumulative effect of a lot of little things that you do 
that stress you out, but also that bring that stress back back down. And as you've found, that's evolved for you as well. And that when you when you got into to farming, it excited you, it, it lit you up, and it probably wasn't overly stressful at that point. But then, as you've evolved as a person, person as your circumstances have changed as well, that has it's pivoted from being something that that chills you out, settles you down to to something that that raises those stress levels. So it, yeah, I'd rather these days I'd rather give you a call and say, hey, let's go jump in a tinny and go and catch some fish, and then we'll come back and collect some wild berries in the forest. That's where my life is going to go because I want to honour what you and I have traditionally done. Let's mm. grab five, six friends, head out fishing, grab some berries, sit around the fire. There is something about sitting around a fire eating some freshly cooked fish, which you go, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like this is right. Yeah. And it's somewhere in your genes from, you know, 500,000 years ago programmed in there. This is how you are meant to be leading life. And that's the direction that I want to go in, you know, for, for this next stage of my life rather than plowing the, plowing the earth and planting carrots. Mm, yeah, that's that's very cool. Um, let's knock off these these last principles as well. Um, I think principle four was uh, optimal hydration. Oh yeah, well that's still good. That's, you still uh, drink, still agree with that one? Good. Drink water, but make sure it's good water. I mean, you know, water is a disaster uh, at the moment for us because uh, of this plastic bottled water. You know, you you either you got to pick your poison. Do I drink water out of the tap? And I don't know what it's like in Wellington now, but over here you get you get some tap water at a restaurant. You feel like somebody's put a little swimming pool in front of you with the amount of chlorine and fluoride in it. So you don't want to drink that. So then you got to go and buy a plastic bottle. But that plastic bottle has been sitting in a warehouse for six months, leaking bisphenol A from the plastic into the water. And bisphenol A is and started its life as an estrogenic replacement drug. So now you're getting a big dose of water full of estrogenic hormones, uh, which causes enormous problems. And you know, I, I, you know, so then, so you go and get your plastic bottled water, and you take your vitamin D tablets because you're not getting enough sun. I always say to people, look, imagine if you and I had to go to business school, and the professor of business said, uh, "Okay, Chris, I want you to go away and come come back with a great business strategy." that's uh, going to make you a lot of money. And you come back and go, okay, well, uh, I, li I live in this very sunny uh, island and I'm going to sell people sunshine in a capsule. The business professor say, Chris, that's the most ludicrous, crazy statement I've ever heard in my life. And you go, okay, well, I've got a backup plan. I'll, I'll sell people water in a plastic bottle. And I say, you're an idiot. You're not going to make $5 from that plan. But they're both multi-billion dollar industries. Now, selling vitamin D to, D to people um, which they should get from the sun, and selling water, which they should get from the river. But here's the problem. The river's polluted, and we're all working 12-hour days and can't get out into the sun. It's now what? It's now nearly it's 6.30 here. I got up at 4.30 this morning when it was dark, and I'm going to get home when it's dark because of the new life we've set for ourselves. So, yeah, absolutely, water is critical, but we've got to find a way of making sure the water is more natural for us, which is by drinking as close to spring water as we can, not in a plastic bottle. Mm. Um, your point five was vital nutrition. I'm assuming you still agree with that one too. 
I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? I'll say about that. But I think that means just eat good food mm. and and it's still critical. Uh, but again, try and make that food as close to the food that we are anthropologically, ancestrally designed to eat. And that's you know so this, what I'm really excited now is about the the wild foods. I spent time in the Arizona desert with uh, the Apache and learning about the foods they used to eat and the wild foods. And there's no doubt that, you know, if you're going to the supermarket now and buying, most Australians eat like four vegetables. Homo sapiens used to eat 268 plant foods per year. Now, you didn't eat 268 this week, but you and I hung around, you and I hung around Wellington for uh, a couple of months and then it got cold and we moved up the coast a little bit to the Keppity Coast and the seasons changed and the plants changed and we got 268. And then, uh, then it got colder, so we moved up to the Taranaki and, and hung around uh, the base of Mount Taranaki and got the foods and herbs there. So we've always had this huge exposure to plants which are very high in medicine and foods that are high in medicine. And let medicine be thy food and food be thy medicine, Hippocrates said, is fantastic. you just got to make sure the food's still got medicine. And you may find the iceberg lettuce you're eating and the potato doesn't nearly have as much medicine in it and nutrients in it as it used to have because man's changed it so much. So that's where you want to start getting smart about nutrition, trying to get wild foods, trying to forage some wild foods, having a lot of herbs and spices, foods which man hasn't changed much over time. And that's what the Apache just said. They taught our people that, that bitter foods were best and medicine is bitter. So the Apache didn't have a hospital down the road. They had to make sure that they got their medicine from their food. So they sourced food, which was very high in nutrients and medicine. And we've moved away from that, and we need to move back to that. If you're going to say, I'm having a salad every day with iceberg lettuce, you're not getting as much nutrition as you think you are. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think your, your point six, Greg, was uh, to control your mind. What? What does that mean? Yeah, that's uh, a good question. I might have to Google that one. <laughs> Control your mind. Um, I think that probably gets back to your the the thoughts that you tell yourself. Uh, you know, and again, your motivation, your sense of purpose. Who was it? Stephen Covey said, "Start with the end point in mind. Develop a plan for yourself." And again, words are very important. I have had this discussion with a lot of people recently about the words that we say to ourselves. And, and mind-body medicine has become huge now because the research is very strong. The research is very strong that meditation is a critical part of any health program. The research is very strong. The, the psychological research and the words we say to ourselves, if you come in to sit, I was talking to somebody the other day when I go skiing, and if I'm skiing down a, 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 a steep slope and I say, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall as I'm going down, it's very likely I'm going to fall. So I change those words now and I say balance and harmony when I'm saying myself. And if you come to see my clinic and, and tell me you sit over slumped in the chair saying I'm sick all the time, I'm never going to get better, you are probably not. The words we say, the purpose in our life, the focus that we have, the meditation that we do, the science now is overwhelming that that is critical. And, and, and meditation is, is critical. But, but the important thing to say about meditation is there are multiple different styles find a style which suits you. And and you and I can talk, if you like, about why I've embraced cold water exposure 
is giving me that meditative benefit as well. Mm, yeah, and I mean that—that's kind of what you what you had. Uh what I read from from you as well, um, you mentioned the principle of the Japanese principle of of ikigai under that as well, the the sense of purpose, um, which we've already kind of kind of uh, discussed. Yep. But I think I mean that is quite a nice segue into into the cold water therapy and and what you do with that because uh, I mean I think that's something that doesn't pop up on a whole lot of people's radar I mean potentially it does a little bit more now that Wim Hof started doing documentaries and the like yeah yeah I was was listening to a guy from the Scandinavia the other day and he he was talking about how Wim Hof is the cold water guy and he said well come over to Scandinavia and tell us that because we've been doing it for about like 50,000 years. Uh, so it's nothing new to the Scandinavians. Look, I think there are just absolute medical benefits to cold water. It dissolves biofilms, it, uh, which is the layer of snot which covers uh, microbes. It uh, builds brown fat, which is our energy burning fat because it's full of mitochondria where we get our energy from. Uh, and it builds resilience. But for me, so there are medical benefits, but there are also psychological benefits because I have found it a fabulous tool for me for meditation. If you and I sit down on the floor now and cross our legs and go om, I'm going to last about 30 seconds before my brain is starting to think about some problem I need to solve. Uh, and I found it very difficult to, to clear my mind uh, during a typical meditation process. But the interesting thing for me, when I'm in cold water, uh, which I go back to Queenstown to run some courses over there and resilience training, and I spend a lot of time in, you can find cold water even in Queensland, is that when I'm in cold water, my mind is focused on what Wim Hof calls the lizard brain. I am focusing on survival. I'm not thinking about the problems I've got. I'm not thinking about my work problems. I'm not thinking that how the hell am I going to sell my farm because it's too much work for me now. I'm not thinking about how am I going to pay next week's mortgage payment. I am thinking about controlling my breathing because it's like breaking eight degrees water. And unless I control my breathing and control my shivering, I'm going to uh, get in some problems. So you go into your lizard brain and you focus very clearly. And the great thing is all that other shit goes away. For that mm-hmm. period of time, you are in there and there was no other problem in your life other than other than concentrating on your survival when you're breathing. Your mind clears of all that other stuff immediately, and I find it really releasing for me. And you're in the wilderness. I don't do – I don't like I – don't, I don't – I get nothing out of being in my bathroom and tuning my shower cold. That doesn't do it for me. If I'm going to do cold water, I am going to take a hike out into a river or the wilderness or I'm a waterfall junkie, and I am going to do it there because not only am I getting – the physical physical benefits of the cold water. Not only am I getting the meditative benefits of the cold water, I am getting some sort of anthropological benefit or of being in the forest, and also getting what the, the Japanese call shinrin yoku, which is what they call forest bathing. That's a prescription in Japan. You go there, and the doctor says, "Okay, you need to go do some shinrin yoku," and you say, "What the hell is that?" That's going out into the forest. It's called forest bathing because when you're in the forest, the science is very clear that you're inhaling the essential oils released by the plants, and that is very, very good for you. So, multiple benefits for me of getting out into the wilderness and getting into cold water. Mm, yeah, very, very cool. And I, I hear what you're saying about 
that focus there as well is that the coldness it just it just sharpens it it just kind of brings it in you you your mind can't really go anywhere else i mean if you sit down and you try and try and meditate sometimes i just find my mind goes goes everywhere i can i'm much better after i've exercised if i sit down and do some try and do a bit of meditation and that i find i can just i can focus it and i don't know if it's the the actual physical act of going out there and working my body and using that and kind of working a little bit of stuff out in my head prior to to that mm. i kind of some I kind of liken my mind sometimes to like you toss a Barocca in a glass of water and it just fizzes around everywhere and it just yeah. goes. Well, that's my message. I'm not saying that might not work for me. And you might mm. come to a call with me and get in and go, Greg, this is not working for me. My mind's all over the place. What you have to know is there a mold. What you don't want to do is say, oh, I, I did a, I, I went to a meditation class. I did it for 20 minutes. It didn't work. I'm never doing it again. Well, you, there are multiple ways of doing it, and you've got to go and do different approaches until the fun. Just like there are multiple different. I don't want to go to a yoga class in a hot room, which is a really hard workout. I'll go to the gym. I'll go and run up the hill if I want a hard workout. Yoga for me is a very calming, meditative process. So I, I'll do a kundalini yoga class. Uh, I, I don't need my yoga class to be a hard workout. So if I went to a, a hot yoga class, I wouldn't find it very rewarding because it's not what I want to do. So, again, I'm not going to dismiss yoga. I'm going to go and try the, the hundreds of different styles until I find the yoga for me at this point in my life, which is the right one for me. Mm. And I think actually that segues quite nicely onto your last point, um, which I think is the, is the most important one of all is take responsibility for your own health. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's critical, isn't it, really? Uh, if you're, you know, you, you either say, I'm going to, I mean, one in two people are dying of heart disease, one in two people are dying of cancer. So I say, if you don't have a strategy for both those, they're coming. So you've got to take, just like you take responsibility for the security in your home, you go around at night, make sure the windows are closed and the doors are locked, you've got to do the same thing because you've got some bad things circling around your body wanting to get in and you've got one strategy is that I develop a system to prevent that and I'm going to take responsibility for that or I'm going to wait until I get until the, the somebody comes into my house and I'm going to call the police but by then it might be too late I would suggest that's not a good strategy I would suggest make taking responsibility for security in the house just as you take responsibility for our own health and not wait to be saved. I mean, it's interesting. I was in Wellington a few months ago and I saw in the newspaper the, the, the government saying, look, you know, we don't have enough in an emergency. We don't have enough water. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough hospital rooms. This community needs to take some responsibility for its earthquake uh, readiness stuff because we won't have enough people to come and save you. Same thing, don't have a personal health strategy, which is I'm going to drink as much beer, smoke as much cigarettes, eat as much fast food as I like, and then I'll go and get fixed at the hospital when I get sick because they won't be able to fix you. So you've got to take responsibility for being as strong and healthy as you can because the system's not going to save you. Mm, yeah, and I think you, you also make a, a, an interesting point as well. Uh, this one's on your website about the – the role that genes play in this and obviously people kind of say oh this is this is hereditary i'm bound to to get heart heart disease or bound to get cancer but there are 
again, multiple strategies that you can use that I heard a great analogy the other day that um, genes load the gun. Your decision and your lifestyle and your environment pull the trigger. Absolutely. And, and, your, and your mindset. I mean, I just lost my dad to Alzheimer's disease, which was just he, he died in Wellington a few months ago, and I was there with him when he died. And he had a bypass when he was 60, and he, he died of Alzheimer's when he was 83. Uh, so, you know, am I doing any tests to see if I'm prone to Alzheimer's and heart disease? Hell no, but I tell you what, I got, I got a strategy for both. Uh, so, yes, you know, I'm not – Do you? if you think I, – I don't for one second think that I'm going to get either heart disease or Alzheimer's disease because I have a strategy to prevent both. And I think that mindset of just as you said, you know, I ain't going to pull the trigger. Sure, the gun's loaded, but I'm not pulling the trigger. So absolutely that you have a ability to – epigenetics i mean the whole genetics industry was a disaster let's find out what you're predisposed to all we found that did was put up our insurance premiums but epigenetics has been extraordinary because the research is very strong that if you make some changes your genetic destiny does not have to manifest itself Mm. yeah yeah Greg, I mean, there's multiple topics that that I could talk to you on. Um, I'm sure you're starting to get a little bit hungry at the moment. Actually, I've got a uh, I've got a couple of questions that I usually ask everyone towards the towards the end of the chat, and we we may need to kind of reconnect at some point for a, for another one because um, I really enjoyed talking to you. Hit me with them. First one is: Can you tell me about a time that you failed and what you learned from it? my marriage failed and I'm still, uh, I don't like to fail at anything. And we've discussed that right from a young age. And, uh, I am, uh, I'm still very sad that that failed. Um, I mean, in a way, I've been, in a way it's, there, there've been good things which come out of it. I'm a much different person, uh, because of that. My kids are still done well, but ultimately I'm sad that that failed. But, you know, marriage is a difficult thing. We have to start at a very young age before we really know how to do a relationship and and uh, who we are as a person. So I, I, you know, I forgive myself for, you know, my role in that failing, but it's still the biggest failure of my life, which I, you know, still am sad about to some degree. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, my next one for you is: What was the last uncomfortable thing that you did, and how did you get through it? Oh, my last uncomfortable thing was going to a waterfall in Lamington National Park in the Gold Coast with somebody very special. And um, going in the cold water underneath the waterfall, which was an extraordinary experience because the Lamington National Park and anybody who hasn't been there, it's an extraordinary asset full of, it's a, a very, very old rainforest full of incredible waterfalls. And it was uncomfortable, but beautiful and magical at the same time. Mm. How did you get, how did you get through it? Oh, because that's what I do now. How do I get through it? Because I have trained myself to get through 
the cold water. Uh, it's an ongoing, it's a work in progress, and, and the breathing is critical. I mean, Wim Hof is right. The breathing is critical in your ability to tolerate that and your ability to – the more you do it, you also get better because you develop the resilience and you develop the endothelium and the lining of your blood vessels, which causes the muscle pain when you get in there. You're exercising the endothelium. So you get better with it with time. But it's the breathing and the focus which is critical. Mm. What's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do and why is that uncomfortable for you? The next uncomfortable thing for me is this next transition of my life where I'm going to probably change the focus of my clinic to some degree and move it geographically and I'm going to sell the farm, which is an overwhelming challenge for me to do by myself. Uh, just to get it ready. And it's again, it's a it's a setting off a new direction in my life. I have these 15-year cycles of my life where I suddenly decide that I need to, for me, change direction to embrace some discomfort and some challenge. So I will be launching this new phase of life where Greg goes from running this clinic in this location and working on a farm to being a, going back to being a hunter, a nomadic hunter-gatherer and running a clinic which promotes which helps people achieve gives people the resources to improve their health i mean my clinic started off as a health clinic and it it by demand turned into a chronic illness i've got something which nobody else can fix please help me clinic which i love doing but to help people get over those illnesses they have we have to start in embracing some of the things that you and I have discussed through this podcast as well. And so I want a clinic which can is not just there for healthy people, is not just there for the chronically ill, but uses some of these principles we've discussed and gives people an ability to do that. I want to teach people how to get into cold water. I want to teach people how to get into hot saunas. I want to teach people how to do underwater hypoxic training to encourage their bodies to get over their illness. Mm. Very cool. Do you have any strategies that you use to approach uncomfortable situations yourself? Uh, no, I just think, I mean, I think, I think you just embrace the concept and you realize that you might fail and you don't mind about that. I mean, there are times when I've gotten cold water and it's been, it's just been too hard for me, particularly when I first started doing this in Queenstown with a friend of mine, Ben Logan, who you know. I mean, there were times where I disappointed myself. But, you know, what, my favorite quote in life is the one that comes from Theodore Roosevelt, which I kind of have on my wall on home, which says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again, again, again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of, triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory or defeat. 
So I, I love that quote. It just means mm. that it's good to be daring and it is good to push yourself. And yes, you might fail, but right because you ride in the saddle, the armchair is very safe. You hop in the saddle, you might fall off, but get out there and do it and put yourself into that and learn from your failures. And that's what excites me. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> Greg, I've got two more questions for you, but first I just want to take the time to say thank you very much for, for sharing your time with me tonight. It's been a pleasure to have a chat with you, but also thank you for teaching me and hopefully my listeners a little bit a little bit more about health. Um, the importance of how we approach it, um, that we should that we need to be proactive about it. Um, and also thank you for, for sharing all the, the uncomfortable challenges or some of the uncomfortable challenges that you've been through. It's been cool to hear. Uh, first question for you is pretty easy. If people are interested in you and the stuff that you do and the new stuff that you're going to be doing, how can they support you? How can they find out more? Uh, well, the, probably the, the place I, I write almost daily on my Facebook page, which is Dr. Greg Emerson's Cedar Springs Farm. That's easy to join. I have an Instagram page where I put a, a lot of pictures on what I'm doing, which is Dr. Greg Emerson on Instagram. And I have a YouTube channel, which when my daughter is not busy at university, she helps do some fil um, filming with me. And that's uh, Dr. Greg Emerson on YouTube, uh, the, the three places I do most of my writing and talking cool i'll pop some links to them in the in the notes for the show now, before we finish up do you have any uh advice or life lessons or challenges to leave me and the listeners with well i think that quote i read about theodore roosevelt i mean mm. uh, these days of social media there are a lot of haters and critics out there which makes us reluctant sometimes to put ourselves out there. And I think the critical thing that, that, that embrace people is to, is to take responsibility and put yourself out there and lead by example. And that's how, because that's critical for me is because having children, you know, they don't lead, they don't learn by, instruction they learn by example so just to put yourself out there and start doing some of the stuff we've talked talked about because we have to we have to change the direction of this world because we all everybody knows everybody knows it's going in the wrong direction but nobody knows how to fix it so you have to be uh you have to be mahatma gandhi and be the change that you want to see in the world rather than if you're, if you're waiting for some you know highfalutin politician to make some radical changes uh, to fix the world, it's not going to happen. So, uh, you know, I, I went to a talk on uh, in Wellington a couple of years ago where, you know, it was very clear that it was going to be women of the world who changed it because they had had enough of what we were doing with our food and water supply and what we're doing to our children. So I think the change is going to come from the ground level. It's people like you and me and Ben and all your listeners who by – taking responsibility and, and being examples who will who will change the direction that this world is heading. Awesome. I think that's great to finish it on. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it, Chris. There you have it, team. I hope you enjoyed the chat that Greg and I had today. 
I just want to take a minute to thank Ben Logan for the introduction. Uh, I really enjoyed my chat with uh, with Greg and also really enjoyed my chat with Ben a couple of weeks ago. You'll be able to go back and check out his episode uh, number 59 of the Uncomfortable Is OK podcast. Uh, and if you enjoyed this one, I definitely recommend that. Greg and Ben are great mates and do a lot of work together with New Age Primal. So I think you'll uh, you'll enjoy Ben's take on things as well. If you liked what you heard and want to support the podcast, make sure to share this out with your mates as well. So just hit that share button from your favorite podcast app. Uh, it really helps to get the, the podcast out in front of a whole lot more listeners um, and build a little bit of community around the concept of getting uncomfortable. Thank you for my awesome brother Jeremy Desmond for the fantastic theme music to the podcast. And thanks again to you guys for taking the time to get uncomfortable with Greg and I today. Thank you.